A change of programme at 11.43 this morning. It's the story of a little boy who builds and races his own cart. But now, Brian the Brain in Space 1999. The clip you heard at the beginning was uh, from TSW, which stood for Television Southwest, and their repeat of Brian the Brain, the Space 1999 episode, broadcasts on Wednesday, the 11th of January, 1984. I'm Roz Connors, and welcome along to Fanderson Podcast number eight. And in this edition, if you are a Space 1999 fan, this is the podcast for you. From script to screen, we're going to be looking at the genesis of a TV series. So let's strap in, start the drums rolling, and you and I enjoy the next hour together. Welcome along, listener, to Fanderson Podcast number eight, and uh, this time a round-robin discussion. If you're a Space 1999 fan, then a treat for you today. I'm joined by podcast regular, becoming very popular here, David Hirsch. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi, of, of course, uh, former co-editor of Starlog magazine, and we've also got uh, author Robert E. Wood. Hi, Roz. <laughs> Hello, Robert, and welcome. First time here on the podcast. And as we're talking about scriptwriter today, uh, Space 1999 script editor Christopher Penfold. Hello, everybody. Hi, Roz. <laughs> Hi, Robert. Hi, David. Hey, Chris. Hi. Hi, everybody. Great to talk to you again. <laughs> Excellent. Now, a little bird tells me that there's this new book coming out. It's all on the genesis of Space 1999. So I think I've got the best people assembled who can talk about that today. And David, I'll start with you. You've been waving some scripts in the air this <laughs> afternoon before we actually got underway. Uh, zero G and the void ahead. And of course, this was right at the very beginning of Space 1999. Yes, yes. I actually acquired a lot of these scripts when ITC was uh, essentially cleaning out their New York warehouse. And they gave me a lot of stuff that uh, I brought to conventions. Uh, but I kept a lot of the early material that, on the development of the show because it's a fascinating read as to how a show develops from an initial idea to on screen. Absolutely. Now, Robert, uh, you're collating some of this information together with David and the book. It's going to be all about the very beginning. Yes, uh, the book is called To Everything That Might Have Been, The Lost Universe of Space 1999. And David and I, 2017, met uh, for the first time at, in person at a Space 1999 convention in the U.S., and 2019, we met again 
at the next convention and David brought all these documents that he had in his collection. And as we were going through them together, it kind of, I think, mutually dawned on us that this had the beginnings of a kind of incredible book here. But the thing was, it wasn't enough material. But by that point, unfortunately, uh, Martin Landau had passed away. Mm. And by late 2019, his family uh, was starting to sell some of his items from his estate. And uh, thankfully for all of us, he kept pretty much everything over the years. And so I was lucky enough to get from his estate a lot of documents related to the genesis of Space 1999 and correspondence and all kinds of things like that. So once we had those pieces in place as well, the book began to really take shape. Mm-hmm. And of course, somebody who was there right at the beginning at the production stage, of course, was our, our script uh, writer and editor himself, Christopher Penfold. Uh, what do you remember about this momentous time, Christopher? Well, it's uh, very interesting. I've had a first read of David and Robert's book and um, I was uh, with Jerry and Sylvia Anderson when we were originally launching or, or developing a new series of UFO. And uh, then that uh, transmuted into Space 1999. And um, what I'm really intrigued about is that although I was with them through all of that transition, there's a lot of material that uh, David and Robert have unearthed, which either I've never seen or my memory after nearly 50 years has wiped out. So it's fascinating to be um, either reacquainted with it or acquainted with it. I'm not sure which. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure you're going to discover lots of interesting facts and uh, we'll all be waiting with bated breath for this book to eventually appear. Uh, The start of the series, now, the the, the scripts you've got now, I've, I've been waving a script around here of Space 1999. And uh, this is this is a much later script. It's of um, Journey to Wear from the second series, which was written by Donald James. So the series obviously was well into its stride by then, although it was a reformatted version. But uh, Zero G and um, The Void Ahead, David, who were they actually written by? Well, Zero G was written by Jerry and Sylvia. It's a half-hour script because... Somewhere along the way, the show went from UFO 2 into this half-hour version, possibly because of the United States, we had what was called the primetime access rule at the time. So a lot of local stations got back anywhere from half an hour to an hour of pre- or post-primetime to put their own programs on. So there was a lot of syndicated product coming out. And ITC was doing half-hour shows like The Protectors, which was another Jerry show, and there were other companies. And I think that's where they thought the market was going to go. And then I guess when they started to pump more money into it and hire Martin and uh, Barbara, the show went back to a one-hour show. I think by the time Martin and Barbara were were brought on, it was back. To, it was already back to the album. yeah, yeah, because they were looking for a list actors and looking for some some real showpiece to sell. So uh, uh, probably at that point, as the, as they were looking for American talent, they brought in George Bellack, who uh, Chris could tell us a lot about. 
Okay. Chris, what do you remember of George Bellack? Because he wrote Breakaway, as I remember it. That was the, that's the name that comes up on screen when you watch the episode. That was the only script he wrote, though, of the whole series. Yeah, well, I have actually uh, written a memoir of George uh, for David and Robert's book. George was a wonderful man and uh, remained a very good friend of mine, although his time on Space 99 was uh, pretty short. But short though it was, he exerted a huge and lasting influence over the way in which uh, Space 1999 developed as a piece of space fiction. And um, I'd done a lot of development work with Jerry and Sylvia when it was uh, going to be another version of UFO. And then I'd done a lot of work. Uh, We moved it uh, into being what was eventually titled Space 1999. And um, at some point during that process, the the pressure from uh, ITC in the form of Abe Mandel was that um, the show, given the size of the budget that ICC were now putting behind it, needed to have a high-profile American story department. And uh, so Jerry and Sylvia went off to interview lots of people, and uh, David and Robert have unearthed a whole lot of interesting names that they must have spoken to. Mm. Uh, And um, Jerry was uh, very keen that I should uh, continue to work on the show. And uh, I had a a very good call from Jerry saying in uh, Los Angeles saying that they had found somebody that they thought I could work with. And uh, they were dead right about that. And uh, George eventually uh, arrived in London and uh, it was the beginning of a friendship which uh, lasted until George had died. So um, I'm very, very grateful for that. But what George brought to Space 1999 was a, a level of interest in the human characters. There was, I suppose, uh, because it was a, an Anderson show, the, the lingering sense that... Um, this might be kind of animated puppetry, uh, was there. And uh, really under George's aegis, the characters became very much more real, very much more human. The interaction between them was made much more credible. And uh, that, I think, set the tone for what was uh, really quite distinctive about Space 1999 in the first series. Yeah, I've got to say, I I really love the... The three, the three leads, um, Martin Landau, Barbara Bain, Barry Morse, the characters, Commander Koenig, Dr. Helena Russell, I thought very, very interesting. And although there was supposed to be a love affair developing between those as the series went on, I'm glad they kept it at arm's length, really. It was very sort of subtly hinted at throughout the whole series, because I think that could have... um, overwhelmed it a bit had that been allowed to get out of control i'm actually uh, grateful that it was kept you know just sizzling under the surface there's a very good technical reason for that and uh, it's not well understood at the moment because the way in which uh, television is transmitted now is completely different but um these uh, these films were distributed in film cans or latterly on two and a quarter inch tape and uh, so Um, When the show was uh, syndicated in uh, many stations in the US, nobody was going to pay for 26 
stacks of film cans. So the cans were swapped around from station to station. So there was no possibility of transmitting the shows in a particular order. Once we'd uh, right, launched right. it with Breakaway, right. uh, then you know the cans just moved around and they went out in whatever. So there was no possibility of developing a relationship in a, in a significant way between anybody, actually. Of course, uh, from time to time, within the context of a single episode, we certainly did have human stories, but it was very difficult to preserve a sense of development over the kind of epic journey of 26 episodes. For, for listeners to understand exactly how syndication works, if ITC, so, I believe they sold the show initially to about 110 stations across the United States. So with, for Breakaway, the chances are there would be about 110 prints circulating for the first week since all the shows started within a time and they couldn't shift the cans around fast enough. Primary cities like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago broadcast the show in 35 millimeter. More local stations might broadcast a 16 mil print. But once they got past the first episode, then they greatly reduced the number of prints available. So in New York, I believe the second episode broadcast was Dragon's Domain. It was in San so Francisco we, as well. Right. So we jumped all the way to the end where other stations might run, say, uh, Earthbound as the second episodes, whatever one they decided was going to be the next strongest episode or what was available. And the stations would then ship that episode either back to New York or to the next station along the chain. And if a station edited the show down for com extra commercials, they would put the footage back in at the end and the next station would cut out different footage. Oh, so by the fifth station, you would get a print that was all <coughs> broken up. And and yeah. really, this was the format, like Christopher's saying, of yeah. really all the film series at the time, if you think about right. Time right. Tunnel, and, Star Trek, yeah. and, and that they all had to end the way they'd started with everything back to normal again. And there was no linking really between story to story, just as Christopher's saying, simply right. because the yeah. order of episodes could be, well, they could be shown in any order, couldn't they? Well, a network show, a network would do that too. They would just pick whatever the strongest episodes are. So they didn't want continuity, but getting back to the characters, the, the thing that's really important about what George did was he developed a, a re really strong characterization that was kind of absent. I mean, there was certainly no characterization in Jerry and Sylvia's script. It was simply there to establish the format for the, for the TV show and for the production company. Whether that was intended to be filmed, I don't know. But George had a clear definition of who the characters were, what the setup of the moon base was. So he was very good at men and women doing the same job. There was no sexism in his script. The characters did what they were supposed to do. Ethnic and, diversity too. Right, very much so. I mean, his, his early scripts, the names are all over the map as far as what countries they're from. It's a true international base. And a lot of the changes in the drafts are what's evident is how they've either designed the, the show, you know, a set's been established that's a little different to work in, or they've cast the characters. So once I think Martin and Barbara came in, the relationship between Koenig and Helena changed because in the initial script, it's very adversarial. What you have in the big finish adaption of Breakaway is 
very close to what George had originally. He had Helena very suspicious of anybody in command, that they were not going to tell the truth and do the right thing. They were all political puppets. That all developed as it went along. Yes. Um, Landau and Bain came on before the first draft of The Void Ahead was completed because we have a letter from Jerry to Martin and Barbara, mm -hmm. uh, which is in our book, uh, where Jerry, and this is after they've, they've signed the deal yeah. and are on board, where Jerry is telling them that he's ex you know, ex anticipating the, mm -hmm. the, the, final, the first script and he'll be sending it to them. So, you know, they came on board before there was a first script, uh, well, really. Yeah, um, but I don't think he, I don't think he really, I, I think possibly changes were made in the characters because they do soften up. Oh, oh absolutely. Well, draft. Well, yeah. The characters were absolutely yeah. developed once, once Martin and Barbara came on board, the characters were tailored more to yes, them. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and and, and uh, I can tell you exactly how that happened too, because, uh, Barbara, to, to this day, thinks that um, when I was working on Space 1999, I was uh, I, I just out of university. I, I mean, it was actually 29 or 30 at the time, and I'd uh, done a bit of television. But when they came onto the show, George had by then already departed. But, well, at least by the time they, Martin and Barbara were installed in London, George had already departed. And um, so one of my fondest memories of working on Space 1999 was that uh, many days after a hectic uh, day at the studio, I would uh, go uh, back into central London with uh, Barbara and uh, Martin and uh, uh, go to their house in Little Venice. And uh, we would then have script meeting on often well into the night. And wow. um, so quite a lot of quite a lot of what I've learned about script writing for actors and the development of the characters, uh, how to develop the characters was learned from Martin and Barbara in those sessions. And they did. They were they were really keen to um, make sure that the characterization of those two characters was um, what, in their view, would be the best uh, possible outcome. And of course, you know, it was orientated towards Martin being the lead in the show and um, the need for him to be on screen for a great deal of the time and so on. But uh, nevertheless, their, their primary interest certainly was to get a good story and a good show. And uh, I learned so much from them. Christopher, I've got to ask you this. I, I watched an interview online with uh, Barbara just the other day and uh, she said regarding the scripts that... Um, the British had to understand that um, when these things were written for American TV, that you have to have a cliffhanger every six or so minutes because that's where you're going to have your commercials and you've got to have, and Martin's described it as a white knuckle moment. Did this ever cause a problem, do you think, in the, with the writing? One of the most depressing things that I've uh, had to deal with uh, in, uh, uh, in writing drama for television is the phrase, the function of television drama is to deliver the audience to the advertisers. Of course, what we wanted to do as writers was to write a good play. But um, that uh, format of four acts or, or, or sometimes five, a teaser and an epilogue and so on, whatever the requirements of cramming in as many commercials as possible, of course, it wouldn't happen with streaming nowadays, of course, but 
that um, in the end, although it was irksome, in many ways, you know, if you got adept at it, um, you could make it really work to your advantage. David uh, and Robert here, I I don't know if you've seen this online. I expect you have, because if you're a fan like me, you'll be hungry for any kind of information. There appears to be some on-the-set audio recordings from Breakaway. Yes. And there was an awful lot that was filmed that wasn't actually used in the final cut. This is an exciting topic, actually. It's quite yes. a, it's such an interesting topic because over the years, uh, of course, there's been a number of times where Jerry Anderson specifically has talked about uh, the fact that Lee Katzen went over so much on shooting Breakaway. And we know, of course, that it did run very long. And uh, the cut that he delivered ran long as well. And then, of course, it was re-edited and some things were rewritten, some things were reshot. And then the final breakaway episode was created. The, the whole process of that is fascinating to look back on because the way that Jerry has always told it was that Lee Katzen was basically responsible for it going over, for everything, and that Jerry had to swoop in and save the day and uh, rewrite and reshoot because Jerry thought it was... The, the cut that Katzen delivered was terrible. And apparently ITC, you know, in, in mm. New York, uh, Ed Mandel felt the same thing. So what's really interesting now in our book is we've got various documentation related to the potential that they may have been considering going theatrical with the initial pilot. And so there is supporting material now, which we will be revealing, which goes... Uh, quite a ways towards suggesting it's possible Katzen might have even been under instruction to deliver essentially a feature length cut because they were thinking that that was something that might have I mean those audio recordings from the studio floor they reveal quite an interesting amount of extra backstory regarding Dr Helena Russell's husband uh, there's more mentioned of uh, that which we see of course see in matter of life and death and uh, more of commander gorsky as well and most notably an underlying tension between him and commander koenig i was fascinated to read that uh, yeah I, I i i can't say that um i mean it, it was in many ways news to me but um but there's a kind of subterranean memory of that that being uh, quite an issue at the time and i was uh, interested to see the uh, correspondence relating to Sil- sylvia's enthusiasm for the for the prospect of taking a feature length uh, cut of uh, a breakaway to to the Cannes festival and i suspect that there might have might a little bit of been a little bit of dispute in head office there about whether that was going to be a good thing or a bad thing and uh, i suspect that uh, Lee Katzen and uh, Sylvia probably had one notion in mind and uh, Jerry another. I mean, the one thing that that is evident in the scripts that I have, because I have three versions of The Void Ahead, the turning point, which was the shooting script, which I believe Chris rewrote, and then the blue pages for Breakaway, which had additional changes. But all these five scripts have the same format, four acts, the, the opening teaser and then the, the uh, trailer at the end and turning point has timings for each scene rough timings as to 
what it should each scene should last. And if you add them all up, it still comes to a, a standard length episode. But what happens in a lot of cases is you shoot extra coverage, actors' reactions. The actors tend to will walk around as they're talking, which may increase the length of it. And I broke down one, one sequence from that script and then went to the actual episode because I knew the scene hadn't changed that much and timed it in the episode. In the script sequence, which is um, Simmons' arrival at Alpha and then Koenig, Bergman, and Helena telling him about the danger at the waste dump, times out to about two and a half minutes. When you watch the episode, it actually runs only a minute and a half. And there is a lot more visual effects footage than the script spells out. So what they were talking about, a feature length version, could have been all this extra coverage or extra visual effects, which we know showed up in the opening trailer sequence. As well um, as different scenes that did get cut. You know, there's, there's as Roz was talking about, there's various character moments oh, yes. like that, that were obviously shot because we were in the script. Out. Yes. But there okay. are... There are scenes in the final episode that aren't in any of the scripts, like, like, um, like when Koenig comes, is first meets Helena, and he's talking. He he does that little side talk about her prize microscope, and it's not right. in any of the scripts, which may have been a reshoot or done on the set. But Chris yeah. could fill that in. I, to be honest, that uh, lost in the mist of time. But um, with regard to the structure of uh, four acts and teaser and so on, I mean, of course, had there been a feature cut all of those breaks would have gone mm -hmm. so those timings would not have been would not have had any bearing on the way in which it was cut as a feature i, I think uh, as far as anyone ever finding it to my knowledge the footage no longer exists the fact no. that the audio's disc existed were surprising but when we were doing super space theater that was one of the things that i asked when i was over at the the warehouse in england if any of that footage existed even though they were doing the theatrical version with uh, war games as an edit i think they had looked for the footage too that's why they ended up shooting all their additional conference room sequences to tie them together because they couldn't find the footage Gentlemen, we're going to hear an archive clip now from an interview I made with uh, Barry Morse back in 2005 when he came to my town. I was very lucky enough to get a chat with him and I asked him a question about one of uh, my favourite episodes. Indeed, I do believe it's one of his as well. Barry Morse, still on Space 1999. I think we're going to pick one of your high moments here in it or one of the, um, one of the, one of the very few high moments from what you've been saying. The Black Sun. Ah, now it's interesting, Roz, that you should mention that, because all over the world, whenever we talk about this old series, Space 1999, and you ask the viewers to pick what was their favourite episode and what was their favourite scene in a favourite episode, they would almost always mention this episode called The Black Sun. forecast it is a black sun 100% certainty a black sun hmm unfortunately we couldn't be sure until it was too late to save Mike but you think we can avoid it its gravitational pull can become so immense that just a half full of the stuff can weigh more than several alphas but it doesn't stop there 
the gravitational force goes on getting stronger so that nothing, not radiation, not heat, not even light itself can escape it. Its force is immeasurable. Even computer cannot determine it. Professor, you didn't answer my question. Do you think we can avoid it? I thought I did. I'll let you into a terrible secret, Ros. That scene which took place between Martin Landau and I, in which we were thinking about and discussing what was going to happen to us because we believed that we were about to be killed, that whole scene was improvised by Martin Landau and I. We decided we wouldn't use any of the script that had been written because it was all rather sloppy and sentimental, rather like stuff you put on a greeting card. And so we decided that we would make up our own dialogue as if we would, if we were indeed about to be executed. And it's turned out to be, in many people's opinions, about the most popular scene that Space 1999 ever had. Have you ever wondered just how and why we've survived? Not until now. You got any answers? You're not referring to God, are you? Oh, I don't know exactly. I, 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 I'm a scientist. I don't know anything about God. No, it's sort of... Cosmic intelligence is what I've got in mind. Which intervenes at the right moment. Is one answer? Ultimately, I suppose we all believe what we want to believe. That's just what reality is. One thing, though, the line between science and Mysticism. Just a line. <laughs> Sometimes it makes me feel quite old. Mirelle Barry Morse, um, who I was uh, delighted to speak to back in 2005. Quite a lengthy clip there from uh, Black Sun, but definitely uh, a popular one with the cast, the viewers, and uh, the writers, I hope, even though Barry says there was a lot of improvisation there. Christopher. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, so I'm going to put my hand up right away and uh, say that all that sloppy and sentimental stuff that uh, Barry disposed of um, was uh, stuff which I'd uh, written myself. And um, of course, I mean, I've just written to uh, Dave and Robert a lot about the evolution of the script. And um, of course, Barry and Martin were consummate actors uh, and uh, they actually they took the material and made of it what they did. And uh, it, the end result was, of course, superb. So, yeah, I will um, uh, plead guilty to have given, the, given them the springboard from which to uh, launch into that scene. And actually, many of the thoughts and uh, uh, so on uh, that um, they uh, articulate so well in that improvised scene uh, were actually suggested in the script. So there we go. 
David and Robert, any any well, any thoughts there? Well, one of the things that we have that I have here is David Weir's original script for the episode, which structurally is is very similar to to what was finally aired, but a lot of stuff had to be changed. Uh, I think Chris will will agree to it that Weir's script from a visual standpoint was unfilmable as at, at that time. Nowadays with computer graphics, a lot of what he describes could be done, but it was, you know, a miracle that Brian Johnson and his crew were able to pull off what they could from that script and make something that was threatening looking and wondrous at the same time. David's script was a, touched quite a lot on the metaphysical. Bergman was particularly about the same as far as it was a new event to them. I, I don't know where we got the name Black Sun from. My research doesn't seem to come up with anybody using it scientifically. Although Robert and I agree, it's it's a better title. It's um, it's a great poetic, right? And and it's more mysterious. Well, it's certainly stuff. better than Black Hole. Yes, <laughs> yes, which gives away the ending of the show. Yeah. The moon uh, goes down the hole like a golf ball and comes through the other side. Uh. Yeah. yeah. I've got to uh, say, we... my favourite line in that episode, and one that y- you could blow your mind thinking of the possibilities, is where you hear the voice of, and you're assuming it's God, and the, and the, the words are, I think a thought perhaps once in every thousand of your years, you're yes. never there to hear it. Yes. I mean, what, what, you can go away thinking about that forever. Yeah, I mean, it, it, um, it, it's all part of, I think, what we're set up originally was just this whole, the universe being something mysterious. I mean, that was, again, George Bellack, too, who decided that the Alphans were the invaders. Yeah. The space was going to be dark, dangerous, mysterious, which was something that Christopher and Johnny Byrne and the rest of the writers carried through the first series. It was a cold, dark place, and that was, I think, part of what made the show so unique was that it was not a bunch of people in a spaceship uh, just jaunting around mm. the universe the way somebody does in an RV around the country. Well, that concept that, that Christopher approached again with Space Brain, with a living mm-hmm. entity in yes. space. Yes, yes. That all goes through the whole series, this metaphysical, these unknown forces that uh, may be playing with the Alphans as if they're intergalactic chess pieces. They have some destiny. I mean, Space Brain, Collision Course, even down to Dragon's Domain, the whole thing about a spaceship graveyard that seems to move Mm. through through space, time and space, is just uh, wondrous. Robert. I'm going to... He's holding his hand up. He has a question. (laughs) No, I'm just going to go back to Barry Morse again before we drift a little too far from that. Yes. uh, and, And say that, you know... I'm constantly having to deal with this online as well because people uh, grasp onto when when Barry has at various times said negative things about mm. Space 1999 and at various times has, has repeated a story about how he uh, left the series to, quote, go and play with the grown-ups. You know, things like that, which actually are not really honestly reflective of the truth. Barry was an actor. I was really good friends with him for about 15 years and i co-edited his memoir and uh, also after he passed away all of his diaries uh from his life came to me and they're now in a museum archive or library archive at the wealth in ontario but in the diaries there's a detailed 
step by step or day by day account of what happened when he left the series. And essentially, you know, he was made an offer. They made an offer to him to be in the second series, which he put in his diary that it was a 33, I believe that was the correct number, 33% cut in Mm. pay and no transport from Pinewood to his home, which he had received on the first series. He termed it derisory and he instructed his agent to try to negotiate. It was unsuccessful. He requested several times for Jerry Anderson to call him. He was told that Jerry Anderson would call him and Jerry Anderson never called him. And then after, I believe it's 13 days, he instructed his agent to accept the original offer as made to him initially, including the cut and everything. And at that point was told that his services were no longer required. So an actor is, actors have egos, actors Mm. have fragility. And, you know, for an actor to be told their services is no longer required and to be treated that way is a bit of a slap in the face. So Barry's recollections over the years and in later years were, I think, definitely tainted by that. When he made derogatory references to the scripts or to Jerry and Sylvia and things like that. Well, sure, the scripts, I think sometimes you can always have legitimate uh, concerns. Jerry and Sylvia, maybe they weren't the best producers necessarily that Barry had ever worked with, but he was in a, in essence when he was saying that he's going to leave and go and play with the grown-ups for a while. It's just a slap back basically mm-hmm. at the treatment that he received. So, you know, and the fact is he did try to, stay with the series. He did, over the years, remain in contact with Martin mm. and Barbara, with a bunch of other people, with Xenia Martin. They, they were friends over the years. He attended countless numbers of conventions. He loved the fans. He was sort of an honorary grandfather. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, his, yeah, uh, yeah I, think, I think Barry had a real soft spot for the series. The character that Barry played, of course, was the character through which all of those metaphysical themes that David was just talking about were most frequently expressed. That was the character that um, George Bellack created as Victor Bergman. And uh, as I've uh, written before, Barry made that character his own inimitable style. But um, during the course of the shooting of series one there came a point you know where shows that um, had been completed were taken off to uh, LA and played in front of focus groups and um, you know the comments of focus groups were allowed I think in many ways to influence the direction in which the series was steered in a very deleterious way and uh, so Barry would have been, I, I think, um, or when, when uh, he was told his services were no longer required, it was also symptomatic of the way in which the series itself was being driven in a different direction and probably in a direction that um, uh, Barry himself wouldn't have particularly appreciated. So it also plays into my own experience on the show because as you probably have picked up from the 
what I've had to say so far. You know, my enthusiasm for the show was in those kind of metaphysical shows. And um, as the pressure came on to be more of a kind of an action adventure thing in space, I myself was um, pretty seriously disaffected by it. And that's mm. I left the show before the end of the first series. So, um, you know, I had a lot of sympathy with Barry. Yes. Interesting as we talk about these focus groups, and we have some literature on that in the book. And what's fascinating is the episodes that the focus groups allegedly don't like and why they don't like it are actually the episodes that the fans think are the best episodes. <laughs> we, we know that Black Sun, after it was screened in New York and stuff, they were told we don't want anything that complicated. When uh, Guardian of Peary was finished, uh, everyone thought, oh, this set is, is just ridiculous. Uh, no one's going to believe this. We, we don't want anything that looks that weird. And yet everyone, when they're talking about Keith Wilson's design, waxes poetic about how beautiful and unique the set was. And Keith had all these ideas for other mm. sets like that. And he was told, no, you can't do that. One thing we have in the book, which uh, David was just sort of touching on, uh, not particularly to do with focus groups, but uh, when, you know, if anyone uh, ever went and saw Johnny Byrne at any of his appearances at conventions, one thing that he would mention sometimes was how after year one, he had written a critical commentary on all of the episodes of season one. And uh, he often told that story, but he also said that he unfortunately didn't have a copy of it anymore and no one else seemed to either. And so it never, it became kind of, you know, mm. folklore that this existed. Martin Landau in his collection had two copies of oh, that, wow. which, I, which I now have. <laughs> and so we're, re we're able to reproduce Johnny Byrne's critique of the series at the time which is really fascinating, as David was saying. Some of the critiques ring very true to us now. Some of the critiques seem really opposite from what the general consensus is these days about, about a couple of the episodes in particular. So it's really fascinating to see what Johnny actually had to, to say about the show at the time. Since you're mentioning Johnny, that um, I have uh, two or three really great things that I was able to take away from my time on Space 1999. One of them we've talked about already, which was my friendship with George Bellack, and the other was uh, with Johnny Byrne. And um, Johnny and I remained uh, good friends uh, and, uh, until he died. And uh, of course, we then, after Space 1999, we then had another working life together uh, on another very successful show, All Creatures Great and Small, where we had a, a somewhat different world to Space 1999. The life of a rural vet in, in, in the Yorkshire Dales uh, could not have been further removed from uh, Moonbase <laughs> Alpha. Um, but um, Johnny loved both of those shows and uh, I was uh, forever pleased that um, I, in responding to a play of his that I'd seen on, uh, on, on the BBC, uh, rang him up um, from LC Studios and said, um, come and uh, have a chat about this new show that I'm working on. And um, it, 
it, it opened the door to a, a working life together, which was great. Fantastic stuff. And of course, Johnny went on to do Heartbeat as well, which was equally as popular here, certainly here in the UK. Looking at uh, Space 1999 scripts, you mentioned the focus group, uh, David, are the yeah. ones that the focus groups didn't like were the ones the fans did. What did they make of uh, yeah. Dragon's Domain, which is one of Christopher's, uh, I think, most fondly remembered stories? And of course, it was a take on St. George and the Dragon. Well, I think that also because that one did solve one of their quests, which was there was a lot of action in that episode. So we had lots of action. We had some spectacular visual effects. It was it was an all around you know blockbuster of an episode, which I believe Johnny Burns said we couldn't mm. couldn't afford to do that every week. It was very gory um, for six o'clock in the evening, though. When I first saw it, there well, there the... were a couple of show. There were a couple of shows with that, that issue. I mean, of course, there was the um, Force of Life. There was the famous uh, the trading card that uh, had to be pulled because uh, it was too gory for children. <laughs> of the uh the burned anton zorov the show was definitely if people thought it was going to be a puppet show and certainly sometimes some places it was scheduled because they thought it was a kid's show it wasn't it was it was mm. just like ufo wasn't a kid's show it dealt with very adult themes this was much more adult uh, it was groundbreaking in the sense that where other science fiction shows were basically in the same format every week you would have a, ha a haunted house episode one week. The next week you would have an episode dealing with a serial killer. ITV um, had no idea, I think, what they were dealing with when they mm -hmm. scheduled mm. Space 1999. Certainly we, in, uh, in, in making the show, had no sense that we were making a show for children. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting about uh, um, the way television executives think sometimes it's yeah. probably changed quite a bit now because science fiction does play well but um i uh, when i was working um, at the bbc i was actually working on all creatures great and small i think the uh, head of the uh, series department uh, was talking to me uh, one day and i think that they were on the point of recommissioning doctor who and he was uh, humming and hawing about that and uh, he looked at me quizzically and said, Chris, you know all about science fiction. What is it that people get about it? <laughs> and it was quite clear that he didn't get anything about it. Yes. Well, that, I mean, that, that's obvious in the development of the show, too, is that, you know, you're, you're, uh, the writers, the producers are all trying to sell a show to executives who are holding the money out. They're not the audience, though, so they don't understand what the audience is hungry for. And I think that's where all the conflict came in the creation of the show. I mean, we know that the whole idea of blowing the moon out of Earth orbit was because A. Mandel demanded the show not take place on Earth. UFO 2 was only commissioned because he told, he asked Jerry Anderson, what was your favorite episode of UFO? What, what showcases the strengths of the show? And Jerry mentioned a question of priorities, the one that was almost completely earthbound with the death of Straker's son. And Abe Mandel said, no, that was the worst episode. I don't want to ever see anything like that again. We're not going back to Earth. So they, just, they originally were going to blow up the Earth, which they thought was too depressing. So we'll do it instead. And... All the writers were stuck with this concept that was really 
difficult to explain, but uh, in George's script, he worked really hard to come up with a reason why the nuclear waste dumps blow up. He's got this whole idea of mixing atomic waste and the whole thing. And you could see throughout the show that Chris, Johnny, Eddie DiLorenzo are all trying to take this format and try and make it as believable as possible. I think Martin has said as well that the show should have been allowed to go the way it was meant to go because it was finding its way as it was going on, but it was its own person. But there were too many people out there that were trying to make it like Star Trek. Well, all shows are like that. They all all have to develop. The problem was, unlike the average network show, which four or five episodes into production is now on the air and they get feedback and they can make changes. That's why you have shows where a a guest character suddenly becomes a regular because he's a hit with the audience. This show was done completely in the dark. And the only people who actually saw the show before it was broadcast were the executives. Mm -hmm. So they had total control. And unfortunately that's how, but that's how Jerry worked all, all these years. Most of all his shows were in the can before they were, broadcast and he was on to the next series well there was a bit of focus group uh work that was done as well like chris was referring to right uh and and i think chris would say and has said that uh, it was a bit dispiriting to have the responses come back and then be instructed to to change the tone and the substance Mm. of the stories as they were going forward yeah trying to work out why Christopher got so disaffected here as well and it sounds like the show was being pulled in all sorts of different directions and never really allowed to find find its feet yeah well there's um in uh, uh David and Robert's uh, book um there's um a quotation from an, a Los Angeles critic about uh, I think the first episode of uh, of series two and uh, I think that, I mean, I can't quote it verbatim, but um, I think uh, the tenor of that uh, critique really tells you the direction in which the show was being yanked. And uh, I, I don't think it really recovered from that myself. But I mean, of course, there are fans of series two who absolutely love the show. So mm. who am I to know? Well, I'm, I say I'm a fan of both series, probably for very different reasons, but it's it's all Space 1999 to me, and I just love it, and I wish it could have gone into a third and fourth season. It would have just been wonderful for it to have continued, perhaps into the early 80s, and of course we had all the Star Wars movies in the cinemas then, and the Star Trek movies. They really brought science fiction back into the, into the public eye and in, in a very big way. It, possibly would have helped space 1999 and other shows along a bit so yeah, well, with a bit of with a bit of luck you're going to have helios in the in the uh, in the 2020s too yes yes, <laughs> yes. so but I'm, yes I'm, I'm, i'll pick up on what chris said too but uh but uh, roz uh you mentioned space going on to a third season and you know martin landau has talked about that at different times in the past where he said that well, various people have, that uh, there was talk of a shortened season or that the money was pulled to by Lou Grade to finance Raise the Titanic and other films he was doing. But um, one thing that was interesting at one point or a couple points over the years, Catherine Schell had said that there was uh, at one point going to be a spin-off starring her character, yes, Maya. Yes, Maya. And all she had was her remembrance of, of that. No one else had any recollection of it. Jerry Anderson, nobody seemed to remember it. 
But again, in Martin Landau's collection, we have a letter from ATV to that Martin Landau was CC'd on. So I've got a copy of it. And it's about the spin-off series, the potential spin-off series. And it outlines just a few basic points that were going to form the, the essential core of what that series would be. So it's amazing. We finally discovered a little bit of concrete evidence that, that shows that that was actually something that was really being talked about at one point. Mm. With the series being yanked around, I remember, David, as you're the former co-editor of Starlog magazine, I've got to say that my first edition of that magazine that I actually acquired, there was a letter in the back in the letters section, and it was for, from somebody called Robert, I think his name was Robert S. McEnroe. And I do apologise to you, Robert, if you are listening to this podcast today, but your letter in that uh, magazine made me want to rip the whole magazine up <laughs> when when I saw the comments that uh, he made about Space 1999. David... I mean, uh, there, were always, there were people who loved and hated the show uh, for different reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, when you look at the show now, you just see that how ahead of the time it was because, I mean, just, just 15 years later, suddenly Star Trek The Next Generation was doing the same thing. They were doing a lot of breaking format stories that space had started. So... I think it, to a certain degree, it was ahead of its time. Mm, absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, would you, looking back on it now, I mean, we're a long way past it now. People are still talking about this series. We're still talking about it today. All the people involved in the podcast have got a very strong affection for it. What are your feelings about it? Well, I, 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 mean, I, I feel... I feel colossally flattered by it, <laughs> that the fact that, um, you know, when I was at the last convention in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I met David for the first time, I remember so clearly I, I, I I'd arrived at the hotel and uh, I was at the reception desk and uh, I was uh, checking myself in and uh, a tall gray-haired, lean man next to me heard me say my name. And uh, he said, uh, oh, I've really wanted to talk to you for such a long time. He said, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a scientist at NASA. He said, I, I'd, I'd never have been there without Space 1999. So, you know, I've, I, I'm uh, hugely flattered by things like that. Um, and the fact that um, fans turn up to conventions year after year desperate to find as uh, robert and david are going to help them to do mining mining lost treasure troves of information to understand more and more about the way the show happened what happened to it the way it got blown off course or what whichever your is your point of view but the fact that it um, still engages people in such positive way of course where i feel immensely flattered by that Final thoughts, uh, Robert and David. This new book is on the horizon. Hopefully we can see it soon. And uh, there's going to be lots more revealed about Space 1999. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're still mining little pieces here and there and um, putting stuff in. In fact, I just noticed something in the back of David Weir's script. I was going, why didn't we put that in? Better put that in <laughs> I did, that last page. I just made a note as we've been speaking uh, today. I just wrote a little note down as well. So David and I will be talking about a couple things later. 
But the yeah, book is yeah, coming together. Not... It's it's really uh, shaping up beautifully. And I don't know when exactly it will get published, but we do have a publisher uh, in the UK, actually, that has expressed interest. So hopefully they'll like it when we share it with them and um, we'll get it on the schedule to be released. Yes. And then, and then um, you know, Chris may want to uh, say something about um, what he's up to these days. Well, yeah, I mean, a, a, a lot of fans at conventions uh, have uh, heard, heard us talking about this for quite a while, but um, we have been working that is Robert and uh, Steve Warneck and Eric Bernard. And I have been working on a science fiction epic, which uh, we very much feel is of its time and that its time has come. And uh, we're very, very hopeful now that in uh, 2021, we'll um, finally get a, a move forward with it. And uh, we hope it'll be a piece of science fiction that will excite as much enthusiasm and more uh, of, uh, that uh, Space 1999 has. And I think one of the reasons why we feel really hopeful about that is because there is uh, a huge space dimension to the story, but also there is an earthbound uh, uh, section of the story as well. And uh, the episodes move back and forth freely between those two. I think um, I, I think it's uh, very much a show for our time, and uh, we hope it. As I say, its time has come. It's called Helios. Look out for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, I'm going to say a big thanks, author Robert E. Wood, also author and former Starlog magazine co-editor David Hirsch. And our very special guest, star guest on this Fanderson podcast today, a former script editor and writer, Space 1999, Christopher Penfold. Thank you for joining me today, gentlemen. You're Thank welcome. You, Thank you, Roz. Thank you. Fanderson is the world's only official appreciation society for the work of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, with its own club magazine, exclusive merchandise and more. If you'd like more information, please see our website at fanderson.org.uk. Just before we finish, let's have a little brain tester here. Cast your mind back to the UFO episode ESP, where John Croxley takes himself to the psychiatrist. He also picks up his wife and they both drive to the big building before he goes inside. The question I've got to ask you is that when he comes out, he's driving home on his own. And he takes an interminable amount of time to get home and only to be stopped at a shadow roadblock. Here's the question for you. How does his wife get home way, way, way before he does? There we are. Answers, please, to me on the back of a £5 note. I've been Ros Connors. This is a Fanderson copyright production. Keep well and most importantly of all, stay safe. <laughs>